Merry Christmas, everybody. It's a very exciting time of the year, and I have in my right hand out of the home office in Sioux City, Iowa, I have, I'm just kidding, that's not really true, but I do have in my right hand the winners of the Christmas Caroling Challenge. You guys aren't as excited as I am about this, to announce this. And uh, so before I announce the winners, there was one outstanding submission that I want to just show to everybody just for fun right now. It doesn't have anything to do with the sermon at all. So let's watch this submission from the Lundrigan family. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Outstanding, you guys. I just assumed it was okay to show that on Sunday morning. I, I hope you're okay with that, yeah. So the winners for most original lyrics and best family togetherness is the Lundergan Group. Good job. The winners in the categories of early bird caroling and best festive singing is the Roses Group. Kevin Rose is up in the sound booth. Cindy's over there. Good job, you guys. And then for the categories of most people caroled, I think that means you sang to the most people, and best costumed carolers, okay, because some of these people were dressed up as elf. I mean, that, that's got a score for, for sure. So in those two categories, the winners is the Holers group. So good job for that, you guys. And that's a lot of fun. It's good to have a good time right now, especially in the world we live in. Uh, and Christmas, I, I think most of us think, uh, I think we assume this, at least if we don't say it out loud, we tacitly believe that Christmas is supposed to be all about joy and peace and tranquility and happiness because that's what's in the Christmas movies, right? That's what's in the songs. That's what the culture promotes. But as I've been reading, again, the Christmas story this year, the last couple of weeks, I, I've been struck by the fact that the Fear plays a huge role in the Christmas story. Have you ever stopped to notice this? This is kind of amazing to me. One of the most frequently reoccurring phrases in the Christmas story is, fear not. The angel says it to Zechariah. The angel says it to Mary. The angel says it to Joseph. The angels, plural, say it to the shepherds. And, and other people in the story who don't get told to fear not are running out of fear. Like Herod is terrified. That he's going to lose his power. And so out of that fear, he initiates the slaughter of the innocent. And, and last week, we kind of started looking at what Christmas says to people who are in a tough time. And I told you the story of the friends in the drive-by shooting on the West End. And, and we asked the question, what does the Christmas story say to them? What does the Christmas story say to us who are going through a, a pandemic and we live in a world that's kind of dark right now? What does the Christmas story say to us? And among all the things that the Christmas story says, it occurs to me that one of the things the Christmas story says is this, fear not. Chapman University does that ongoing uh, research and study on phobias and fear in America. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. You can look on their website. They do this kind of every year. And uh, I got initially connected to it because one of the top phobias 
of Americans is public speaking. And I teach a course on public speaking um, to YWAM and the School of Ministry Development. And this is one of the things I use because a lot of people really are terrified of getting up in front of people and speaking. It's one of the main phobias. Also on the list every year, interestingly enough, is clowns and zombies. I just find this fascinating. These are in the top list. I mean, like, actually, I understand being afraid of clowns. That actually makes sense to me. But the, the zombies thing, I don't get since they're not real, you know, it just, it, but, but people have a, a phobia, some people have a phobia, and then they go through, not just people are recurring phobias, but fears that people experience on a given year, and so at the end of 2019, uh, one of the main fears that Americans had was the fear of a corrupt government. I, I don't think that fear has gone away, but in addition to that, if when they, the 2020 numbers actually come out, I think in addition to that is going to be the fear of COVID. I think that's going to be on the list. And most people I talk to have some serious concerns around COVID. Most of the people I talk to aren't worried about getting it themselves. Most of the people I talk to are concerned for other people or other things. Like they're concerned about people who are in higher risk categories in their family. Or they're, they're concerned about their business or their livelihood, like the economy. Are they going to still have a job at the end of this thing? Like there, there's a number of people who are really concerned about our kids and NTI. Like, I know a number of parents that are really fearful that their kids are falling behind, and when we go back, are they going to be a whole, did we lose a year of education? A number of people are really fearful about young people who are, are dealing with some serious mental health issues. And in fact, just two weeks ago, I think it was, a Gallup survey came up, which is, the, I think, the fourth study I've read in the last six months, talking about how suicide ideation is through the roof for young people today. Not for middle-aged people, for young people. Through the roof as a result of this pandemic. So there's a lot of, here's the point, there's a lot of legitimate things to honestly be concerned about right now, but it's very easy to allow a legitimate concern to morph into a fear and be controlled by that fear. See, there's a lot of fear out in the world today. And, I, and you can even feel it when you're just driving down the road. Even Christmas shopping. Even Christmas shopping right now feels less festive than in previous years. Have you noticed this? It's just because there's a lot of fear out there. But I want you to know there was a lot of fear at the first Christmas too. In fact, I want you to look at this chart. We're going to put a chart up of the common fears uh, that were in the Christmas story, okay, that, that some people deal with today even. It's not just around Christmas, but there's the fear of inadequacy. Mary in Luke 1 says to the angel, how's this going to happen? I haven't met the qualifications to be the mom of anybody, much less the son of God. How, how was it? She's feeling of being inadequate, okay? There's the feel of failure, fear of failure that Joseph experienced. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 1. There's the fear of death. I mean, when, when, when Joseph brings his family back, he's told in a dream to bring his family back to the Holy Land. The promise, I mean, he finds out that although Herod is dead, his son is now in charge. And his son may be as bad as the dad. So he's, it, the text says he was afraid, so he went to Galilee. He went to Nazareth. On that occasion, an angel didn't tell him to. He went because he was afraid. The fear of death. We might actually put in there, I could have put fear of death. I also could have put fear for your children. What parent doesn't know that fear? Concern for your kids. Every, every person in here who's a parent knows what I'm talking about. You know what it is to battle this fear. And as it turns out, I'm learning, even when they're adults, this is funny, the parenting thing doesn't stop. Right? Who knew? 
I know some of you, you're like, we try to tell you this, Tim. It's, it's, you know, you, and so you're tempted to worry for your kids. That's a legitimate fear. There's the fear of change. The shepherd's there. They got the sheep down for the night. It's dark. There they are. And the angels appear. It's like the, the night sky lights up like the 4th of July. And there's this glory to God in the highest means. And they're terrified. The angels have to say, don't be afraid. There's a fear of change. There's a fear of losing control. Herod, Herod was, that was his whole thing of killing the innocents because he was losing control. How many times do we deal with that fear ourselves of losing control or fear of disappointment? Zechariah, when he's told that he's going to, you know, that he's going to have a son and he's going to name him John, you know, Zechariah's like, oh, listen, I'm old, my wife's old, we've been trying this a lot. And I, I, I'm a little disappointed. And, and there's the fear of disappointment again, and we all know that fear of being disappointed. Here's, here's my point. Every basic common fear that you and I are faced with, at least the big ones, okay, maybe not zombies and clowns, but the big ones are dealt with in the Christmas story. This isn't a myth, this isn't a legend, this is a story about real life, and it gives us some clues about how to overcome fear in our own world, in our own time. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about overcoming fear this Christmas. And I was helped in in kind of working through this by a piece uh, put together, written by Rick Warren, entitled, Learn to Enjoy a Fear Not Christmas. He had a few thoughts uh, that kind of primed the pump for me, and I'm going to jump off from a few of his thoughts. So here they are, four antidotes to fear. I know what some of you are thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, the song said three points. I heard the song. It was on the three points per sermon. But listen, it's Christmas. It's bonus point Sunday. Okay? That and the fact that Miss Judith said um, she needs extra time this morning for the party back in the back. So I added a point. I did. That's not. It is true, actually. Okay. Here's the deal. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. If we're living in fear, it's not something God gave us. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And, and so as, chi- as children of the Most High God, we shouldn't walk in fear. Francis Chan tells a story, um, just as a side note here, and I can't remember which book this is in. Francis Chan tells a story about when he was pastoring out in California, he had a guy in his church who could bench a thousand pounds. What? Like he set a world record, benched a thousand pounds. Here was what was more dramatic. The dude's wife could bench 405. I haven't benched 405 ever. Thank you. That's right. That's, that's true. Thank you, Seth. Um, have we already given him his Christmas present? Have we, has that already been done? Is that, is that a done thing already? Did we already give him the Christmas? Anyway, yeah, that's all right. No, that's true. I've never benched 405. Now, here's the thing. That couple, they have kids. Wouldn't it be weird if they were bullied and pushed around? I mean, like, the, you know, can you imagine? They're, they wouldn't be like, my dad can beat up your dad. It'd be like, my mom can beat up your dad. <laughs> Please. It would just seem, wouldn't it seem weird if they were bullied and pushed around because their parents are so strong? You know what? That's what it looks like as us, for us as children of God Almighty. When we get pushed around and we live in fear. And so we're going to talk about antidotes to fear. Let's look at it coming right out of the Christmas story. This is how to conquer fear, how to live fearlessly this Christmas. And even if you aren't facing, maybe you're saying, I'm not afraid of anything right now. Well, well, you know somebody who is. Uh, so you might want to take notes. Number one, number one, here's the first thing you do that comes right out of the Christmas story, how do we uh, overcome fear. Number one, surrender completely to God every day. 
Surrender completely to God every day. Remember the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be the mother of the most high, right? You're gonna, and this is going to happen. And Mary's like, hey, how's this going to happen? He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the most high is going to overshadow you for nothing is impossible with God. And here's her response. Watch it. Verse 38 of Luke chapter 1. She said this, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. What does she do? She's completely surrendering to God's will for her life. And I'm sure she felt inadequate. I mean, there's a whole list of things. First of all, most likely, she's a teenager. I mean, most Jewish young ladies in the ancient Near East were betrothed at the age of 12 and a half or 13. That's when they're betrothed. So there's a good possibility she's no older than 16 years old. I want you to let this in, okay? There's a lot of miracles in the Bible. Here's one you probably haven't thought of. God entrusted the salvation of the world to teenagers. <laughs> Drink that in for a second. There's good historical evidence uh, to suggest that some, at least some of the disciples were most likely teenagers themselves. <laughs> like... So she probably feels inadequate. So there's some fear there, right? She's unmarried. She's inexperienced. But in the face of all of that fear, you know what she says? I submit to you, God. I submit to you, to your will. May it be done unto me as you have said. Listen, one of the reasons the gospel is here today is because Mary said yes to God there. She submitted her plans for her. I'm not sure she had some plans for her life. All of us got some kind of plan for our life, even if it's not well planned out and thought out. We got some plan. And she said, I take my plans and I submit. May it be done unto me as you have said. Have you done that? Have you ever prayed that prayer? And listen, I don't, I don't mean, did you pray that prayer 30 years ago one time? Lord, you know, uh, I submit to you. And then you went on to kind of live. I mean, do you pray that prayer regularly? But because Mary had other scenes in her life that she had to demonstrate that same attitude of surrender. It wasn't just the one time when the angel's there. Because how many of you know, I'm, I've never, you know, been confronted by an angel. But I'm guessing it's probably easy to agree with an angel. If you're standing there, it's probably, go, okay, you win. If that, I'm guessing it's a little bit more difficult when you're surrounded by friends and family. And you've got to say, may it be done unto me as you have said. For example, there, let me give you a few scenes out of Mary's life. Uh, eight days into Jesus' life, she's just given birth. Eight days, uh, by custom, they're supposed to go to the temple, and he's supposed to be presented to the Lord and circumcised. And when they go in, they run into this dude named Simeon who's been waiting. He's been promised that he's not going to die until he sees the consolation of Israel. That's the word, consolation of Israel. He sees the child. He takes it. He rejoices. He sings. And then he looks at them and says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many. And then he looks at Mary and says, and a sword will pierce your soul too. What did that feel like for Mary? Do you think she said, hey, I didn't sign up for the sword. I, I was like just wanting to be the, the mom here. Like, th this is going to hurt. You know what she had to do? She had to say, may it be done unto me as you have said. 
Or how about in the same chapter, Luke chapter 2, there's fast forward, because this is kind of how the Gospels work. They kind of fast forward, you know, so they go from when Jesus is 8 days old to when he's 12 years old, and they're out, and uh, they're going to, you know, Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and they're on their way back. And it's one of those events that maybe some of you uh, who have had multiple kids have had an experience. You know, you're at Cracker Barrel, and the husband drove, and the wife drove, and you all thought you split up the kids evenly, and you drive on, and when you get to where you're going, you go, hey, I thought the kid was with you. I thought he was, he's back at Cracker Barrel, you know. We've all had something similar to that, right? Well, that's what happens. They think, not Cracker Barrel, because they didn't have those in Jerusalem in that day, uh, but, they, but they had something, you know, he, they left him at the Passover. They go back, they're looking around everywhere for him, find him in the temple, and they're like, there you are! And he says, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Now, what would that feel like? You're like, look, I know you're, you know, son of God and all, but you're 12. What did that feel like for Mary? May it be done unto me as you have said. And then how about a few chapters later in, in, in Luke chapter 8, there's a scene where Mary and, and, and Jesus' brothers are out looking for Jesus. They're looking for him, Jesus, Jesus, you know. And one of the disciples says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are looking for you. And you remember Jesus' response? He said, who's my mom and my brothers but he who does the will of my father? What would that feel like? Now, he's redefining what it means to be family, and there's a deep theological truth in that text. But here's the point. Be Mary on that day. She had to completely submit to God's will for her life every day. Every day. And one of the requirements for us to overcome fear in our life is surrendering our will to God's will. Because here's the deal. You can't truly follow Jesus and be your own Lord at the same time. It doesn't work. There's a constant pulling against God. If you're trying to be Lord, because here's the deal. Jesus thinks he's Lord. And he is Lord. And there's coming a day when everybody's going to say that. But in our life right now, if we're constantly trying to be Lord, what are we doing? We're pulling against God and it never works. There's no peace in that. And that leads to more fear. Let me try to illustrate this. And I, and I brought, I have, I have props today. Okay, I brought, for my birthday this year, I was given a present by Graham. I got this sword for my birthday this year. Now, just, you know, there's a joke in our family that we have a favorite son. And we don't. Marlene and I don't. We don't have a favorite son. Although, if we did, this would be the kind of gift that would pop you up the list. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't have a list. But if we did. Right, honey? Your mother loves skincare products. Christmas is Friday, right? Is that right? Yes, okay. All right, so this is, huh? Yeah, I know. You're jealous. Okay, this was, this was my birthday present. This is a replica of Peter's sword from the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. Yes, thank you very much. There's my one C.S. Lewis quote. Okay, so, so this, is, this is Peter's sword, and there's a story told uh, about a group called the Knights of Templar who were established in Jerusalem in the medieval period, 12th century, during what we call the Crusades. And in this group, 
The story, and there's a lot of stories told about the Knights Templar. A lot of it's myth, a lot of it's legend. Some of it might be true. There's a lot of conspiracy stuff around it. I don't know what's true and what's not. But there is a story told that applies to what we're talking about. Because some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with Christmas? Hold on. Wait for it. Okay. Um, there's a story told about the Knights Templar that they would take their sword and they would be baptized. And as they were being baptized, they would hold up their sword out of the water so that everything else was submerged in the water except their sword. Which was a way of saying, Jesus, you're Lord over all of me, except I get to keep the sword. So I submit everything to you, Jesus, except what I do on the battlefield. I, I, I'm going to submit to whatever, the King of England, the Pope, whatever, whoever it was. I'm submitting. You get everything, but I'm holding this out of the water. Now, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you read the Gospels, Jesus never gives that as an option. Right? Whenever somebody comes to him, he doesn't have like a mathematical formula, except that to say, whatever's most important to them, he asks for that. So a rich young ruler comes in, and, and he's really concerned about and Jesus says, here's what you do. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. Now, he didn't say that to everybody. But he did say to people like, in, in Luke chapter 9, somebody says, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me go bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. What is he saying? Look, to be a disciple, it's Jesus. You don't get to be baptized and hold your sword out of the water and say, I'm still in control of one thing. Now, before you judge them too much, we should say we're not that different. The difference is sometimes what we hold up out of the water is the wallet. Jesus, you're Lord over everything except how I spend my money. Or, or how about this? Jesus, you're Lord over everything, but we hold up our cell phone. Baptize me except for my cell phone because when I'm online, I, I want to be my own Lord. Like I don't want to be a disciple of Jesus in cyberspace. Or, or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the TV remote. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's sports. And we try to follow Jesus by, by, by surrendering most everything. You know, instead of that, you know that old hymn, I surrender all. We're just saying, I surrender most everything. Because I want to hold it up out of the water. Here's the deal. Following Jesus is not about Jesus plus sports. Or Jesus plus politics. Or Jesus plus family. It's got to be like Mary. Lord, I submit to you, not my will, but your, may it be done unto me as you have said. Because that's the only way you can live fearlessly. If, if, if you don't, if you're holding on to something that's this one thing that you just, I, Jesus, you're Lord over everything except this one thing. It's going to be in that one area you're going to be controlled by fear. It's going to control you. There are way more amens at the beginning of this message than there are right now. I'm going to be okay with that. I'm not going to take it personally. Okay, number two. Number one, surrender everything completely to God every day. Number two, here's how you overcome fear. Here's an antidote to fear. Stop listening to the voices of fear. you got to stop listening to the voices of fear. You have to stop feeding yourself fearful things. Have, how many people here have heard the saying, you are what you eat? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that saying, you are what you eat. Okay, the same thing goes mentally and spiritually and emotionally. You are, so you have to stop dieting on fearful things. Hear me out before you make a decision about what you think about what I'm going to say here, okay? So everybody, because we're in a world that people just kind of judge real quick and without actually hearing. So listen to what I'm saying before you judge what it say, I say. 
fear doesn't have just one voice. There are many voices of fear, and one of the antidotes of fear is to stop listening to the voices of fear. As one person said, don't, you know, stop taking counsel of your fears. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph had all sorts of other voices out there. I'm sure they had family voices saying things, friends, community, other voices, their own stuff going on inside of them saying, don't do this, don't do that. But they had to choose to listen to God's voice and what he said through the angel and not the voice of fear. Now, here's the deal. When I say stop listening to the voices of fear, you may have to get aggressive and shut down other voices. Okay? You may have to silence other voices. Let me give you some examples, all right? And and this is not an exhaustive list. These are just possible applications, and and you just take whatever fits for you. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to translate whatever you need to hear and apply it however you need to apply this. But let me give you some examples. Here's some ways that we feed on fear. And look, here's the first one. And I understand there's a lot of different convictions in a church like this about what is appropriate to watch on TV or online or whatever, and we have different convictions, and you are, it's a, that's a tertiary issue, and you're allowed to have your own conviction. But listen to me. If you constantly feed yourself on horror movies, you know what's happening? You're feeding on fear. You're dieting on fear. And you just got to know it's going to come out somewhere, some way. I'm saying this because I can't. Listen, you don't want a pastor who only says things you agree with. Because you could turn the TV on and find something. You can find somebody to, you know, uh, tickle your itching ears. You want somebody who's going to tell you the truth. So that's number one. Here's another way you got to shut down the voice (laughs) is social media. Now, look, there's a lot of good things on social media, a lot of wonderful things, a lot of great ways, especially in a pandemic, to stay connected with people, and that's wonderful, and that's good, and thank you, Jesus, for that. I'm all for that. But here's what can also happen. You can get in an echo chamber of people saying fearful things, and all of a sudden, if you're feed, if that's all you feed on all day long, it's going to come out. So what do you got to do? You got to limit it. You know, don't, don't listen. Make social media work for you. You don't work for it. Social media isn't Lord over you. Jesus is Lord over you. So here's what might have to happen. Listen, you might might have to quit following certain accounts. You might might have to unfriend somebody. As bad as that sounds. Because listen, like COVID-19, fear is contagious. It's contagious. And if you surround yourself with people who are critical, negative, and fearful, sooner or later, you're going to test positive for fear. Here's another, here's another area where you're going to have to silence a voice. You ready for this one? <laughs> Yourself. Do you know, you don't have to believe everything you tell yourself. Not every thought that runs through your mind is true. Just because you have a thought doesn't make it true. This is why the Apostle Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It sounds violent, doesn't it? You 
I mean, you have a thought, you take that thought, you grab it by the neck, and you say, you will obey Jesus. Because, listen, I'm gonna tell you, this is the truth. I'm here to tell you the truth. I mean, the rest of the things I've said are true, too. I want you to know that. But here, here's the truth. Here is the truth. You lie to yourself more than anybody else lies to you. Let me turn that around. I lie to myself more than anybody else lies to me. And it's true for you, too. Sometimes we have a thought. And, and, and listen, and here's the deal. I, I'm this way, and you're probably this way, too. I don't think I'm always right. But I always think I'm right. Do you follow that? I know standing here right now that I've been wrong at least twice. I mean, like, like several times in my life I've been wrong. I know that. Right? I've been wrong before. I know that I have been wrong before, and I'm probably wrong about something that I believe now. I, I know that. But if I'm saying something in an argument, I'm saying it because I think I'm right. Right? And you're the same way, but it's good for us to remember, wait a second, hold on a second, I'm not the final arbiter of truth. My feelings, my emotions, even sometimes my thought processes are wrong. So what do we need? We need a source of truth outside ourselves, outside of our world, and that source of truth is Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scripture. So make Jesus Lord, listen to his voice, he is the truth. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, one of the ways is you bathe yourself in Scripture. You read the Word. You get into the, You listen to Jesus in the Gospels. Let me ask you, what do you think would happen if we read the Scriptures as much as we watched YouTube? That was a terrible question. Forget I even said that. Let me ask another question that's more realistic. What do you think would happen if we just stopped and read the Christmas story this week? Like if we, I mean, obviously you're going to watch Elf because... We're not animals, okay? We're, you know, we're going to watch Elf this week, okay? But, 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 but in addition to whatever Christmas story you watch, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, whatever it is, you know, Home Alone, whatever. Whatever it is you're going to watch, whatever Christmas story you're going to watch, take some time to stop and read the passages of the Christmas story. And you think, well, which one should we read? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I got a, I got a chart. Here's some, here's some passages you should read this week. These are Christmas texts. Genesis 3.15. Some of you are thinking, that's not a Christmas text. Yes, it is. Because that's after the fall, uh, the first sin of Adam and Eve. And you know what happens? God curses the serpent and he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And you're going to strike his heel and he will crush your head. You know what that is? That's a prophecy that Christmas is coming. Calvary is coming. Easter Sunday morning is coming. I read one person this week who said, all I want for Christmas is a crushed serpent skull. I like that. That's a Christmas text. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, that's a prophecy of the coming son. Unto you a son is given, a child is born, right? And he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then you get to the New Testament. Matthew 1 and 2 is the Christmas story kind of seen from Joseph's perspective. Luke 1 and 2 is the Christmas story kind of seen from Mary's perspective. And then my favorite version of the Christmas story is Revelation 12. Where this woman is giving birth. She's in childbirth and the baby is about to be born. And there's a dragon with seven heads. and A bunch of crowns on his head. And he's waiting to devour the child. It's the Christmas story. Behind the scenes. It's not just a Christmas story, it's the story of all redemptive history. 
But here's what happens. Here's what happens. As you begin to meditate on Scripture, the voices of fear begin to fade as you listen to the voice of God instead. It's important to us. Is this message too practical? Because I'm feeling it's feeling too practical. I feel like I should. Okay. Number three. Number three. Number one, we surrender everything to God completely every day. Number two, we silence the voices of fear. Number three, sing praise to God. Now, I don't know if this has ever struck you before. I'm a little embarrassed to say I just realized this. But have you ever noticed that Christmas is the most musical of holidays? You ever not? No other holiday has as many songs, hymns, carols. As, I mean, Fourth of July. What is there? There's a few country songs. New Year's Day is a, uh, oh, what's? Yeah, 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 there, yeah, there's that. And there's, you know, U2 has a song. Nothing changes on New Year. You know, that song. So there's two. Uh, Memorial Day. Labor Day. Do we sing anything on Labor Day? <laughs> President's Day. I, don't, I mean, I'm, I, there's a whole bunch of other days. That, but none of them really have many songs at all except Christmas, and then there's thousands of them. Why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that music, especially worship, worship music and singing, plays a big role in the Christmas story. Have you ever noticed this? I mean, Mary sings, Zechariah sings, the angels sing, Simeon sings, shepherds, it says, they walk back into town praising God, which kind of sounds like maybe they're praising him through song. Uh, and the magi come and worship. We're not told how they worship other than they give gifts. Maybe they sing. Just about everybody in the Christmas story is singing, except Herod. Listen, one way to combat fear is to sing worship to God, to praise him. Rick Warren, in, in his article, he writes the following. He says, praise is the antidote to panic. Worship is the antidote to worry. So here's the deal. Listen to God-focused music. This week, the, the song that's been playing in my background and when I'm driving is Zach Williams' song, Fear is a Liar. It's, it's a good song. It, it focuses us. You know, when, when Marlene and I, when we're cooking, sometimes we'll put on worship music. Why? Because, again, it focuses our mind. But here's the deal. It's not enough just to listen to God-focused worship music, although that's good. You've got to go a step beyond and actually sing it. Amen. Like, actually worship God. And I'm not even fully sure I can explain the dynamic, but when you start worshiping God in song, it changes your focus, right? You start thinking about God, and, and, and because there's something deeply spiritual about worship music, that you, you begin to focus your mind, you begin to focus as you're singing, it's just coming out of you, you're singing to God, and this is one of the ways that Mary dealt with her fear. We call it the Magnificat, because in Latin, that's the word for for. My soul magnifies the Lord. Here's what she's saying. I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. There's fear 
but not fear of other people. It's fear of God there. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. What is she singing? She's rejoicing in God. And there's other ideas out there. There's other voices out there, other things she could have been doing. But instead, she's singing to God because one of our spiritual weapons to use to be an antidote to fear is singing in worship. David put it this way in Psalm 56, verse 3. He said, when I am afraid, I will trust you. And you know what Psalm 56 is? A song. It's one of our weapons. And fourth and finally. Very quickly, the fourth weapon we have, the fourth antidote to fear this Christmas is this. Base my hope on the promises of God. We're going to submit everything completely to him. We're going to silence the voice of fear. We're going to sing praise to him, and we're going to base our hope on the promises of God. Listen, fear is the natural result of putting your hope in anything or anyone else other than God and what he said. It's the natural result because anybody else and anything else will let you down except maybe bacon. The possible exception to that statement, Jesus and bacon. I'm kidding, but you get my point. Other things will let you down. So here's what, here's what Mary did. She said, I'm going to put my hope in what you've said. And when she talks to Elizabeth, here's what Elizabeth says to her. Luke 1 verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. I I like the way the New Living Translation translates that. It says, you are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. And listen, we will too. We'll be blessed too if we'll just believe that the Lord will do what he said. And for Mary, this was the way to deal with fear. Believe that God would do what he said. Now, sadly, as soon as I even say this point, I have to put, you know, some disclaimers on here because there's been some people who, when they talk about the promises of God, they abuse the whole concept. And, and, they, and it's like, it's just like, I'm going to just name it and claim it. I'm just going to name anything I want, and I'm going to claim that and say I have a promise. Like, I would like to drive an Audi A8 LW12 with the auto Tetronic Quattro drivetrain. I would like to drive that. But I don't have a Bible verse that I can claim for that. Do you see what I'm saying? That, that's not what, that, what I'm saying here. You know, this afternoon at 1 p.m., the Minnesota Vikings will be playing the Chicago Bears. I really want the Minnesota Vikings to win that game. So I would like us all to join in faith to, and agree together that the Vi- Some people cannot agree. People from Chicago cannot agree with that. Here's the point. I don't have a promise in Scripture about the Vikings, obviously. But you know what I do have? I got way better promises than that. Man, I get promised something in Scripture way better than an Audi. Way better than a football game. There's, you know what I'm promised in Scripture? Peace. How much money do people spend trying to find peace? And I got a promise. Or joy. Or hope. The love of God. How about this? There's promises about overcoming fear. Man, the scriptures have way better promises than driving an Audi. 
That's why Peter said this, 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he said, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Stop right there. You could, that's a promise that we've been given everything we need to do life and to do it in a godly way. How? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. Look at that. He's given us these promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Look, according to that text, the way to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world, which would, I assume would include fear, I don't see any reason it wouldn't, is how? Through his great and precious promises. That we put our hope in what God said in the fact that God will do what he said. That's where we put our hope. And the problem is, if you put your hope anywhere else, it's going to be fear. I'll begin closing with this. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest, uh, known as the Prince of Preachers, right? One of the greatest preachers of all time, 19th century in England, in, in, in London. Uh, his sermons would be printed on the front page of the London Times. Cab, cabbies would uh, collect fares saying, come here, Spurgeon, you know, and they would take people to church. Can you imagine? It would be like people making Uber money, just taking people to church. Uh, uh, and that's what they would do to hear this guy preach. He's an amazing preacher. And on one of his messages on the promises of God, here's what he says. God's promises were never meant to be thrown aside as waste paper. He intended that they should be used. Nothing pleases our Lord better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as thou hast said. We glorify God when we plead his promises. Did you hear that? What's it, it brings glory to God when we stand on his promises. And then he goes on. Do you think that God will be any less poorer for giving you the riches he's promised? Do you dream that he will be any less holy for forgiving, you, for giving holiness to you? Do you imagine he will be any less pure for washing you from your sins? Faith lays hold of the promise of pardon, and it does not delay saying, this is a precious promise, I wonder if it be true. But it goes straight to the throne with it and pleads, Lord, here is the promise, do as thou hast said. He goes on. When a Christian grasps a promise, if he does not take it to God, he dishonors him. But when he hastens to the throne of grace and cries, Lord, I have nothing to recommend me but this, thou hast said it, then his desire shall be granted. Man, this is, I wish people wrote like this today. People don't write this way today. He said this, never let the promise rust. Never let the promise rust. Draw the word of promise out of its scabbard and use it with holy violence. Oh, yeah, I got the sword. I got to... Draw the word of promise out of its scabbard and use it with holy violence. Think not that God will be troubled by your reminding him of his promises. He loves to hear the loud outcries of needy souls. It is his delight to bestow favors. He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. Wow. And then he concludes with this. This is so good. It is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne with, do as thou hast said. See, when you're standing on the promises, it combats fear. 
Now, that, of course, assumes that you know the promises. It assumes that you've been in the Scripture. But let me tell you something. There's hundreds of promises in the Word of God. Draw it out like a sword and use it with holy violence. And here's one of the promises. Let me give you just a couple of the promises, and then we'll be done. Here's one of the promises. It's the promise of eternal life. John 3, verse 16 says that one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible in our culture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see that promise? The promise is, listen, if you believe in Jesus, Romans says if you uh, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The promise here is when you believe in Jesus, you get eternal life. In the Gospel of John, eternal life is not something you get when you die. It's something you get when you believe. And that's a promise. And the promise is this. Listen, it doesn't matter what's going on in our world. It matters what's going on in our world. But it doesn't matter when it comes to this because this is saying, you know what? No matter what happens to me, I'm living forever. Forever. There is another world. This isn't it. That's a promise. And another promise is this. At Christmas, we are promised to be free from the fear of death. Hebrews 2, listen to this promise, verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. That's Christmas, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's the promise. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil who tried to hold us in fear. Lay hold of the promises of God. They are the antidote to fear. 